having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. The temperature's rising. It isn't surprising. Hi, everybody. It's episode 54. It's beautiful out. It's beautiful. Look up. You see that? El Sol. That's the sun. Beautiful. Change your mood. Soak up some vitamin D. Didn't even want my morning dog walk to end. Usually it's let's go through the motions. Empty. Empty yourself. And I'm the human servant with the blue bags who will be picking up after you. I'm a good dog owner. We should always call the people out that aren't picking up after their dogs. Even if it's a total stranger, just scream at them. Like the angry kind of screaming. Don't plead with them. Verbally attack them. There's no excuse for stepping in dog shit anymore. All right, I immediately got off track. Hold on, back to the dog walk. Beautiful dog walk, tropical heat wave. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so on my morning dog walk, although yes, I was still listening to the birds singing and enjoying the sun coming up. In the last, I'd say 10, 15 minutes of the dog walk, I put on Joe Rogan's podcast, his interview with Kevin Hart. Very good. Forget everything you know about Kevin Hart. I don't care if you like his movies or hate his movies. I don't care if you like his comedy or hate his comedy. This is a really good interview with a man who has a lot of depth, who has a lot of wisdom, a lot of great philosophies. And as I was listening to Kevin Hart, my eyes were kind of getting wide like, wow, all right, I guess I knew nothing about the guy. And then you could actually hear Joe Rogan's reactions were the exact same. Like, huh. And Joe Rogan keeps saying, have you always been this way? Like, have you always been so woke? Kevin woke one of the great words of this generation and basically he was just talking about his process in life how he prepares his stand-up how he treats his fans his morals his expectations I don't want to go into everything but obviously Joe Rogan brings up the Oscars scandal where Kevin Hart was supposed to be the host of the Academy Awards but they dug up some old tweets this famous story We're going to find what you used to tweet and now castigate you in the current moment. This is happening a lot. People getting in trouble for things they might have said or tweeted a long time ago. And for Kevin Hart, it was homophobic jokes. And basically he said it was very hard because I wanted to lay low and then I wanted to address it and then I wanted to tell everybody I'm not a hateful person. And then he said he realized people liked attacking him. They were just looking for more and more and more. He's like, I said, I'm sorry. I tried to tell everybody I'm not that person anymore. And it would just add fuel to the fire. When you engage on social media or just put yourself out there to say, my bad, people don't always just forgive. He said he was dealing with a lot of hate, a lot of hate and brought up the question, should people get second chances? Celebrities, should celebrities get second chances? I don't know. It's relative to the celebrity. Like if they truly seem remorseful and they've turned a corner and they've learned a lesson and now they're informed and no longer naive and ignorant, I'm compelled to say, sure, there's a second chance. But when you see just some major leaguer who was tweeting out the N-word and he got caught and now he's like, well, I'm not racist anymore. That was just when I was in my 20s. And now that I've been caught and need to keep getting a paycheck from the White Sox or the Orioles, well, now I'm not racist anymore. So if it's an opportunistic apology just to keep your job or just to keep your status, just to keep the paychecks coming, then I'm a little skeptical. But then again, who cares? 
What I mean by that is, why do we feel the need to judge celebrities? We don't know these people. Is it weird to think we should only care about what they do in the public eye when they're performing or whatever they do? Like if it's an athlete, should we just care about how they play sports or do we really need to know everything about their lives and their beliefs and their ideologies? Do they lean left? Do they lean right? Are they pro this? Are they pro that? Actors, actresses, singers. You know, if I enjoy a singer, I like the sound of your voice. I like when you sing. I want to listen to you sing. And then I find out that, uh, one of your political beliefs goes against my political belief. Now do I have to say, I don't like to listen to you sing anymore. Why do we care? That's why I don't think it's a great era to be famous anymore. I think back in the days of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, all these guys, they were doing some shady shit. From extreme alcoholism to adultery. You could dig up any old celebrity from the 50s, 60s, 70s and find some dirt. But back then they were glorified. Now, as Joe Rogan calls it, the age of outrage. People are just looking to rip somebody down. People are sifting through your old tweets, looking to take you down. In all honesty, I don't think it's a good time to be famous. Kevin Hart was saying it's not about autographs anymore. People just come up to me with their phones and say, can I get a picture? Can I get a picture? He said he was in a bathroom and a guy's like, can I get a picture? He's like, I'm going into the stall to relieve myself. You need a picture right now, right now. And if he says no, then the risk is this fan is going to go, oh, what a jerk. Kevin Hart is such an asshole, right? So every encounter, these celebrities have to be very watchful. How am I going to be perceived if I'm with my kids having a meal and someone comes up? Can I get a picture? Can I get a picture? Be funny, comedian. Can you be funny right now? Sounds tough. And you go, this is what they signed up for. Not exactly. The most genuine form of fame comes from doing your craft, whatever that is, at the highest level to the point where public consumption is going to grow and grow and grow for whatever you do. If you're a celebrity chef, people want to see you cook. They want to eat your food. If you're a singer, and the amount of people that want to listen to you sing increases and increases and increases, then you're famous. Fame's not always a choice, right? Kurt Cobain wanted to play music with his band. Clearly did not like the fame that went along with it. There are probably some athletes that hate the fact that they're famous. They just truly love the sport. They continue playing the sport. They realize they can make a living from the sport. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, I can no longer go to CVS without being mobbed. You got to be on, too. If you're just pumping gas at the gas station and everybody wants to come up for a photo, your breath can't smell. You got to be dressed pretty nice. You can't just look ragged. The amount of times I leave my house just ragged, just totally unkempt, doing a little errand here. We're out of milk. Go to the store. I don't feel the need to wash my face, put on nice clothes. You just zip out. You zip back. But the celebrities can't do that. They can't do that. You got to look good. Even People Magazine, stars, they're just like us. We've all seen that section. Stars, they're just like us. No, they're not. They're not at all. All those actresses with their babies in their strollers, they know the paparazzi's coming in that moment. They're all made up, looking good. They're not just like us with their nannies and their butlers. You caught them pushing their baby in a swing. They're ready for you. But back to what Kevin Hart was saying. You know, I made these jokes. I apologize deeply. 
He said, I was uninformed about the plight of the gay community. He said, I actually didn't know how rough it was, you know, for homosexuals to deal with the hate that comes their way. He says, all you have to do is inform me. And once I was educated, he says, I could process the information and then have a newfound basis for my beliefs. And as he says, he doesn't believe in hate. He said he loves the gay community now. And just listening to this podcast, I go, all right, I guess I believe him. Why not? Give that man a second chance. How about Tim Hardaway, former Warriors point guard? He was interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and he goes, the reason I'm not in the Hall of Fame is because of my homophobic comments. It's a long time ago. This was probably 12 years ago. Tim Hardaway was being interviewed and just said, I hate gay people. I wouldn't want to be on the same team with them. They don't belong on this planet. I mean, he went overboard. It was a hate-filled tirade. It was just the worst negative diatribe, and you're like, whoa. Timmy, thought I knew you. I vividly remember going on the air that day, whenever it was, and open up the phone lines to talk about the Tim Hardaway comments and me personally projecting my own views onto the listening audience. I said, how horrible is this? Not realizing that the first few calls I would get would be agreeing with Tim Hardaway. This is me being ultra naive. Young radio host, ultra naive, not realizing that some other homophobic people were going to relate with Tim Hardaway and happily call a sports talk radio show and rip gay people apart. And I was like, whoa, this segment is definitely not going in the right direction. My program director even came in, Bill Pugh. He's like, yeah, abort. Talk about something else. Maybe the Padres bullpen. Get off the Tim Hardaway comments. So fast forward to right now, Tim Hardaway claims that he has changed. He has evolved. He's learned. He used to be ignorant. And now he stands up for the rights of the LGBTQ community. He believes he's a bit of an activist now. He uses his platform to inform other people who may have some misconceptions about the LGBTQ community. And in that situation, I go, huh, I'm not gay. So I don't know if I would be so forgiving if his comments initially stung, and they did sting. I realize you don't have to be gay to understand that his comments were deplorable, but at the time I was like really disappointed. This guy's my favorite NBA player of all time. So I'm getting to the point where it all comes full circle. Should I care? And the answer was yes. I actually started to think of Tim Hardaway immediately in a different way. Like, fuck, Tim? My bedroom as a kid, I had the Die Hard poster. I had a framed picture. Of Tim, I had a picture of me with Tim Hardaway at some fan fest day. I loved him. Loved the way he played. Sad when they traded him to Miami for Bimbo Coles and Kevin Willis. I'll never forget this. Just thought he was the greatest, the coolest. I like that he was from Chicago, but because he went to UTEP, Texas El Paso, he seemed to have a Texas accent. Talk about a guy who picked up an accent pretty quickly. I liked his I Got Skills commercial. And then this interview he does, I go, oh boy, you buried yourself. And now it's 2019, he's not in the Hall of Fame. Does he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, of course I think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But should he be judged by the voters, by the writers, by the panel for his comments off the court, for his views? That's tough. That's tough. Not saying everybody needs to forgive him, but if it's a basketball Hall of Fame, yeah, he probably deserves to be in. And because he changed his views, he's seemingly reinvented himself. I go, yeah, you know, Tim, I could support you as well. 
This is just me giving you my baseless opinions about these people in the spotlight making mistakes and then trying to battle back and saying, now I know, now I've learned. But that's a microcosm for all of us. Everybody right now has made mistakes. If you're listening right now, look at one of the big mistakes you've made. You learned from it, right? Did you change? Probably. If not, then you're probably living a pretty stagnant life. If you're making a bunch of mistakes and learning zero lessons and just continuing to make that mistake, that mistake, that mistake, that mistake, it's probably beyond your control. You probably have a personality disorder that you can't help. Yeah, I'm talking to you. But most people, I like that most people have a rock bottom or at least a story where they plummeted then they educated themselves and then they realized, you know something, I could be an example to teach others what not to do. Those are the great stories. The people that perpetually just fall flat on their face and never learn a lesson, eh, it's tough. When those people apologize with their empty apologies and go, I should not have said that. I am sorry. My tweets from 10 years ago do not reflect who I am. It's tough to decipher. Is that genuine? Did you really learn a lesson? Did you? Or is this just what your agent typed out for you? All right, speaking of fame, there is an actor that I just saw No, not on the streets, but actually inside of my television acting in a movie called Beautiful Boy. And this is the guy that deserved the Academy Award for Best Actor. Not Rami Malek. I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. Good. B+. His performance, good. B+. Not an A. It's kind of just one of those pretty good rock star biopic performances. It was good. It was very good. Everybody got so excited about Rami Malek. But I wasn't moved I just felt like he was doing a solid Freddie Mercury impression. However, this kid I saw in the movie Beautiful Boy with Steve Carell, his name is Timothy Chalamet. Do you know him? Timothy Chalamet was amazing. And I think they classified it as a best supporting actor performance because I looked it up and he got a nod for a Golden Globe. Supporting? How do they measure what's a supporting actor versus the lead actor. Is it like the amount of lines? Is it how the script was written? Because if somebody takes over the movie and they're labeled as a supporting actor, why can't they still win best actor? I don't know if it's like quantitative. Well, you have to say this amount of lines to win best actor. But if you're just a peripheral figure, then it's supporting actor. I would actually like to know the criteria for the delineation between the two, because this guy was the star. And I realize Steve Carell is probably the bigger name, but the performances were dynamite. And you better grab some Kleenex. You better grab some tissues because you're going to cry. This was one of the most emotional movies I've ever seen. And I don't know if it was in the theaters that long. I don't know if it got a lot of fanfare. But I do know it was noteworthy for an assortment of reasons. Number one, I mean, it was filmed locally in beautiful West Marin out in Point Reyes, Inverness area. So it's one of the most beautiful places in the country. And just when a movie is filmed that way, the cinematography, very coastal, that'll draw me in. Why? Because I'm from here. Also shots around the Bay Area, San Francisco and beyond. A lot of Golden Gate Bridge action. So it's eye candy. It's just stunning to see the beauty of this area being filmed. But in terms of beauty, the story is not. It's about crystal meth addiction. This teenager played by Timothy Chalamet. Seems like he's just having a normal upbringing. Then one thing leads to another, all the gateway drugs, until he tries crystal meth, and it turns out his brain grabs onto it. Immediately, he's an addict. And it's his path. It's his relationship with his father, and how Steve Carell 
captures the essence of a father who had no control of his son. It was heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching, lump-in-the-throat for two hours type of movie. So it touches on so many things, drug addiction, divorce, parent-children relationships. And you wonder, you go, isn't this a privileged kid? He's just a surfer. Seems to have a nice father, nice siblings growing up in a nice area, going to a nice school. And the only thing you could point at for the reason for any of his suffering is divorce. Mom lived in LA, dad lived here in Marin County, and they split custody. You know, you take a kid to the airport and say, you're now visiting your mom. Then he flies back. You're not going back to dad's. This happens with so many kids. I think we have forgotten that it could be traumatic. Divorce is so mainstream. It's so common now. I think it's tough to quantify the impact on kids because there's so many different types of divorce. I'll get to that in a moment. But this movie, I strongly recommend. Best performance I saw all year. There you go. We're still doing my Oscar review. It's now April 2019. And that's why you tune into this podcast for my April Oscar picks. But yeah, Timothy Chalamet, best performance you're going to see. And I feel like I've talked about this, but the relationship you have with a movie is based on where you are in life. So now that I'm a dad, you know, I was seeing it from Steve Carell's standpoint. When I bet if you're a teenager right now and you saw the movie, maybe you would relate with Nick Chef. That's the kid's name. The teenager. The dark path he goes down. But you're just thinking sometimes as a parent, you're powerless. You know, you try your best. But then at some point, as Steve Carell portrays perfectly, you just have to take a few steps back and go, I can't do anything anymore. That is now officially in my top five fears in life. Although I should just live in the moment, take a breath, live in the moment, be mindful, appreciate what you got right now today, and don't anticipate the scary future. All right, there we go. We got through that panic attack. All right, but back to divorce. And here really is the theme of episode 54. Had me thinking about divorce, this movie, because if you want to say, well, this kid has clearly turned to drugs to ease the pain of splitting custody between two parents, some people are like, yeah, that's it? Everyone goes through that, or a lot of kids go through that. But we've minimized it. We have completely overlooked what kind of impact that could have on kids. And let me just clarify, if you're born into a world where your parents aren't married and you don't even really see them together, hugging, kissing, sharing any affection, and your life is immediate, immediately from the jump, split between two parents, two homes, two lives, maybe that's fine. And if all you do is see your parents fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, maybe you cheer for the divorce. So it depends when in life, or maybe you reached your adult years and your parents are in their seventies or eighties and finally split. Maybe that'll have very little impact, but there's probably a sweet spot. There's probably a sweet spot in terms of when it could hurt you the most. And maybe that's what this movie captured is that this kid, although he was pleasant, artistic on the water polo team, editor of his newspaper, getting good grades, you know, nice kid. That on the inside, he was looking to ease the pain. And when crystal meth was in his system, he said, wow, everything, at least in this moment, is wonderful. And then, of course, it captures his judgment, just captures the part of his brain where your good judgment is, and it destroys it. So you can't relate to the world you're in anymore. You no longer fit into society. If you don't care to please people or adhere to the social norms, you're just like, no, my drugs 
are going to be my path to feeling good. Nobody else. Luckily, he snaps out of it. There you go. There's your spoiler alert for the end. But anybody who's a parent listening, just picture that. You know, if your kid comes into the world, loves mama, loves dada, and then one leaves. Yeah. It's tough to act like a kid's going to be able to express that. You know, when they have kids go to see therapists when they're 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, what are they going to express? They'd rather be playing mud football. They'd rather be playing with friends than pouring out their heart. But it manifests itself in other areas. Here's some divorce facts for you. I found this site. It says there's a divorce in America every 36 seconds. Nearly 2,400 per day. So it's about 45% of the population What percentage of people who get married end up in divorce? About 45. The average length of a first marriage that ends in divorce, eight years. Probability of a first marriage ending in separation or divorce in the first five years is 20%. And in 10 years is 33%. Average age for couples going through divorce, 30. And then it says your percentage of first marriage Ending in divorce, like I said, around 45. Second marriage, if you're going to do it again, ending in divorce, 60%. And then if you get married a third time, 73% get divorced again. So that's what we call a trend in the math world. Tons and tons and tons and tons of stats. The state with the lowest divorce rate, Iowa. The state with the highest divorce rate, Arkansas. That'll have no impact on your day, but now you know. All right, so I'll end this way. This is all a big buildup to me looking back on it and wondering, huh, how did my parents' divorce impact me? How? Clearly it did. A lot of people want to shy away from this topic because it's introspective. You have to actually look for flawed areas or areas of suffering or where you struggle. Most people would not want to admit it. Most people go, I love my mom. I love my dad. And it was fine and it became normal. Seriously, 80% of my friends have divorced parents And I never hear any of my friends say, yeah, it's tough. It's been tough. None of us really say that. But clearly, if one parent is not in your life for a large percentage of your life, then you're missing out on whatever they had to offer. It's an obvious statement, but if one of your parents was able to offer something, let's say teach you piano or teach you how to cook or help you with homework or help you tie a tie or help you drive a car and they're just not there, then the parent that is raising you has to compensate for all of that. Not to say there's going to be flaws in your development or holes. You got to give a lot of credit to the parent that did the raising, but still. That'll leave the kid wondering, what if I had both? Huh. Would I be better at this? Would I be so improved at that? Would I be stronger in this category? That's a legitimate thing to wonder. If you feel like there's holes in your development because one of the parents just simply wasn't there, I think you're allowed to question that. It's bad for self-esteem. It's bad for your ego to say, I could have been better at this. It could have been better at that. Should have been better at this. Should have been better at that. Usually you don't want to harp too long on that type of stuff, but it's natural. And I even have memories of the school, like fifth grade or maybe sixth grade, the school taking me out of class with five other kids that had parents going through divorces and sitting at us in a room with a really nice lady. She was a therapist. And I just remember loving it. Maybe because I got to leave class, which is always fun, or at least I always hoped the past was coming my way. Whenever somebody comes in with a pass to take somebody out of class, how many kids are just praying, let it be me, let it be me. And to go to this, what was it, weekly divorce group 
It's just a bunch of kids sitting around. I don't even remember anybody talking about feelings. I just remember it was a fun little group. I remember the names of the kids in there. I won't say the names. I will maintain the anonymity. But it was fun. Maybe that was the point. Let these kids have some fun. So I spend about 99% of my life not thinking about that divorce. Because everything just normalized. It has become normal to have divorced parents. But a couple things triggered my thoughts recently. Number one, this movie, Beautiful Boy. Number two, the Warriors just played their last regular season game at Oracle Arena. The Warriors have been in Oakland for 47 years. And even though there's been a lot of losing, I want to say 47 sacred years because that's the best fan base in the NBA. And now they're going to move to San Francisco next season to play at the Chase Center. So it's going to be different. And in a weird way, I feel like my allegiance will decrease and lessen even more. Because in about 1991, I want to say, when my parents divorced, I think I was pissed. I think I was kind of upset. But my dad had season tickets to the Warriors, and that was something we had already bonded over when he was still at home. My greatest, earliest memories of life with my dad are going to Warriors games. I think I've talked about this. He had amazing seats since the 1970s, right next to the Warriors bench, right on the floor, right on the floor. How spoiled was I? The injured players would sit next to us, literally sit next to us. I remember this. Sharunas Marshallonis, when he was injured, he asked my dad for a piece of gum. Now that's a legendary story. Clarets, by the way, if you need to know the type of gum, Clarets. It's like those little squares, really minty. And I think Chris Gatling asked for gum once. This just became the who asked my dad for gum at the Warriors games in the early 90s. So I loved it. Even when I was a kid on a school night, going to see the Warriors Rockets or the Warriors Sonics, Warriors Pistons, my dad would put a pillow in his back seat, let me fall asleep on the drive home, through the East Bay over the Richmond Bridge, back to bed, listening to KMBR, the postgame show, with Don Nelson being interviewed, and his interviews were brought to you by Food for Less. Our name says it, our prices prove it. Loved KMBR. Warriors coverage was the best. The best. And then you go through a divorce and you realize, eh, things aren't the same, but still love those Warriors games. And I continued to love those Warriors games with my dad. So from a kid falling in love with entering Oakland's Coliseum before the renovation, I think the renovation was 97. I loved it before. It sat about, what, 11,000, the loudest place. And they were not a championship caliber team. But when they built that team first, Chris Mullen out of St. John's, then Mitch Richmond out of Kansas State, and then they get Tim Hardaway out of UTEP. Then you had Run TMC, and then you had my heart. Then it was all I could think about. It was the most exciting thing I had ever seen to this day. I feel like it's more exciting than when I watch Clay and Draymond and Steph and Kevin Durant. Am I wrong? Yeah, probably I'm wrong, but that's relative. What's more exciting, this current championship team or the run TMC style of run and gun in the early 90s? But it was all tied in together. These are memories I'm sharing with my dad. These are also me forming my deep allegiance, my insane fanaticism for Warriors basketball, and it's all coinciding at the same time. Then it becomes those are the moments we're going to share at the Oakland Coliseum, now called Oracle. They renovate in 97, change coaches seemingly every other year. You know, they were so bad for so long, but I still loved them. In a weird way, I felt like I needed them. I know that's so dramatic, but it was like my connection to something. 
I think it's easy to piece together this story. I bet a lot of people have this story where you bond with somebody, a family member, over something, and then you continually go back to that activity. If you're like, I always went canoeing with grandpa, and then grandpa dies, you're like, and I still like canoeing. And then later in your life, you're like, well, you know something, I canoe a lot less. And when I am on a canoe, I think about my grandpa, but you know something, canoeing doesn't mean as much without him. So fast forward this story. By the time I'm 16 or 17, Warriors tickets are so expensive, my dad moves to Arizona soon after, and that's it. The memories fizzle. I'm not going to that many Warriors games anymore. I still buy the NBA League Pass to watch the Warriors through college. But then I realize, you know, now it's just basketball. Now it seems like it's just basketball. But this week, hearing that the Warriors have played their last regular season game, and I know there's many more games at Oracle because they'll probably win the championship again and play a bunch of home games. I get it. It's not done. But it's sad. I think it's sad for a lot of other people who have memories in that arena. I wonder how many other families or father-sons bonded over that or needed that or it was the connection that they had. So that comes to the surface after 47 years, that sacred place. The feeling of walking in and your first glimpse. I remember I used to, when I was real young, I used to tell my dad, let's leave at 5.30 for a 7.30 tip-off. Let's get there at 6.15. Let's try to park around the player's lot. Let's get some autographs. I had every autograph. It meant something. I didn't just want to see warm-ups. I wanted to see pre-shoot around and stretch. And then when they would come out of the tunnel onto the court, that was like the most exhilarating thing in my life. Especially when they had Manute Bowl, because then it was just like, I'm hallucinating. You know, they come out of the tunnel. Everybody's very tall. Everybody's six foot five to seven feet. And then there's Manute, seven foot seven. It's just like, all right, I love it. We're at the circus. This is great. And their style of playing was just the most exciting. Certainly not the best back then. You know, from the Lakers to the Bulls, those were the teams. But something about the Warriors back then, I know there's got to be at least one person listening right now who's like, yes, I agree. That was the most exciting style of basketball. And now it's done. But the memories remain strong. All right, that'll do it. Let's wrap this up. Let's put a bow on it. That's episode 54. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 